0: I am 49 years old, and it was bound to happen at some time, but uh, there's something new in my life. (laughs) And uh, I'm still getting used to them. I don't really like them, but uh, it's kind of that middle distance. I started to notice road signs. The 110 was kind of all blurring together. So, uh, yeah. Right. Right. I was like, I can't really see it. It probably says 130. I should probably just go that speed. So, yeah, finally uh, got in and got tested. So, I'm I'm actually thankful to God because it's not reading. I can read small print. So, as a pastor, that's very helpful. So, here we go. First sermon with glasses. Oh, there you go. Thank you, thank you. Well, this is our twelfth sermon in uh, our Acts series, and I hope you've enjoyed listening and praying and thinking it through uh, as much as I've enjoyed researching and preaching them. Uh, I do have to say I love the book of Acts. As we said right at the beginning of the series, kind of feels like a big adventure story, and you just get caught up in it, and week after week, uh, God is doing amazing things through the Apostle Paul and watching the Christian faith spread throughout the Roman Empire, well, my first point's entitled, What Drives You? And I going to tell you about a tall teenage kid, grade 11. And he was quite tall, so he would obviously made the basketball team at his high school. And uh, the one thing he hadn't been able to do was dunk. And so he is out in his driveway, and uh, he's like, today I'm going to dunk. And so 15 minutes, he's just giving her. He's working on it all. And uh, finally, on his final attempt, he slams the basketball. He's so happy And he kind of does a little dance around the driveway. uh, Who's the man? Look who can slam. All this kind of stuff. And he realizes to his horror, all of a sudden, he lost his contact lens. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh. Mom and dad are going to be so mad. And so he's down there searching. And he's frantic. He's just searching. And searching. finally, he comes in the house. He's like, Mom, I have to confess. When I was playing, I lost my contact lens. And she's undaunted. She's like... I'm going to go out and look for it myself. So she goes out there. And within like three minutes, the mom comes back in. And she's got the contact lens. Unbelievable. He's like, mom, that's amazing. How did you do that? I was searching so hard. I was so scared of what would happen. So I was was searching frantically. And she goes, oh, that's okay, son. She said, you got to remember, you and I were doing different things. She says, you were out there looking for a piece of plastic. I was searching for $300. <laughs> Motivation. What drives you? You know, what drove the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy as they boldly went town to town all throughout Macedonia and Greece sharing the good news of the Gospel. What motivated these guys? Last week we... Saw them endure a beating. They ended up in jail. This week we're going to discover that they find themselves in the middle of a riot. You know, the biggest motivation for the Apostle Paul was actually Jesus himself. Paul would never forget his initial calling. If you remember Acts chapter 9, the road up to Damascus, and Paul was stopped by a blinding light, arrested in what he was doing, stopped at a full 180, And in that process, the Lord spoke to one of his followers, a man named Ananias, and he gives Paul his calling. He says, the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And Paul never forgot his calling. It was what drove him. He was so dedicated to, to what God had called them, what Jesus had called them to do. Just like that mother out in the driveway searching for that $300 contact lens, the Apostle Paul knew he was the ambassador for Jesus himself, a calling of infinite value and worth. Where we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there, all of you at home. It's also going to be on the screen. Acts 17, 1 through 4 When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So here's a news flash: Jesus was Jewish. That was supposed to be a joke. I hope that isn't a radical news flash for you. When God in Christ came into our world taking on humanity, he came through the people group that he had designated as his chosen people. And Paul himself was Jewish. And despite being continually harassed by a slice of the Jewish population, wherever he went, he loved his fellow Jews with an undying love. Paul always followed the same pattern when he went to a new place. Started with a local group of Jews usually in the synagogue. Now, we have to remember that in purely Jewish terms, Paul was an extremely educated guy. He was walking around basically with the first century equivalent of a PhD. Love that slide. Well done, Candace. Who knew Paul had had a PhD with the whole thing? That's cool. When a prominent Jewish man visited your town, it was the custom of the local synagogue to say, Okay, uh, would you like to read one of the Torah scrolls? And so the first half of the Bible was all on scrolls. I've, I've seen uh, when I went to Israel, the archaeological remains of the, these little cabinets in every synagogue. And they had the scrolls in there and they would go select the right one and they would give it to the visitor and they would choose a passage and read it and then often comment on it. And that's what happened to Paul when he went to Thessalonica And they liked him so much week one, they invited him back for week two and for week three. So three solid weeks, 21 days. And now I'm sure Paul and Silas and Timothy during the week were praying like, Lord, break through. Help these people see who you truly are. And initially there's some incredible results. Each of these three groups, some of the Jews were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas. That's kind of the first group. As did a large number of God fearing Greeks, the second group, and quite a few prominent women. Now, we read that verse pretty quick and we go, yeah, yeah, some people came to faith. Okay, interesting. But actually, these three groups tell us a lot. You see, the first group, some of the Jews were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas. That's a huge thing, that's a massive cultural shift. I mean, they would have faced scorn, and and there would have been this sense: you're you're leaving, you're you're following Jesus, you're you're saying He's the Messiah. What? And those folks who didn't accept Christ, who who stayed, would have felt like the others were maybe betraying them. They're like, what? You guys have lost your minds. And that is so inspiring, actually, if you think about it, because it reminds us that. The Holy Spirit of God can reach anybody, at any time, in any place. And I want to encourage you, if you have a friend who's maybe a Jehovah Witness, or a family member, or a Mormon, or Baha'i, or Hindu, or Sikh, or Muslim, and you've been praying for them, don't stop praying. God reached people in the first century, and He reaches them in the 21st century. All right, second group, God-fearing Greeks. Now, the average Greek person was surrounded by a smorgasbord of options when it came to religious faith. That is a fun word to say, isn't it? Smorgasbord. Wow, I want to say that all day. They could stick kind of with the classic Greek gods. You think of Zeus and Athena and Apollo and Poseidon. Or they could kind of go after Greek philosophies like the Stoics and the Epicureans. We saw this two weeks ago with Lydia in Philippi, and now we see it again. There was there was a, a segment of the Jewish population that went, man, I know the one true God is out there. I know He's there. I, I feel it. I've, I see all the, the evidence in nature. And they're like, who knows about the one true God? Well, the Jewish people do. And so they were non-Jews that were kind of peripheral members of the synagogue, and they were called God-fearers. They, they knew God was there. They weren't fully accepted, but they were allowed to kind of be in and around the synagogue and learn in those ways. You know what? I think that is absolutely proof, of that amazing verse in Ecclesiastes 3.11. It says, Everything is appropriate in its own time, but though God has planted eternity in the hearts of man. And I think that's worldwide true. And as missionaries have gone out over the last six, seven hundred years all over the world, they've had encounter after encounter with indigenous people groups who go, Yeah, you're here to tell us about the one true God. Yeah, the Great Spirit. Well, we know about that. Like God has planted eternity in the hearts of people. I think it's amazing. And I think we're seeing it right here. In Acts, then the text tells us quite a few prominent women came to faith, and if you think about Greek and Roman societies, extremely repressive to women. Women weren't allowed to give testimony in court. Uh, They were obviously often cut off from education and politics. And then along comes the Christian faith, and says that the Ground at the foot of the cross is equal, is level. In the eyes of God, men and women are equal. And then the example of Jesus, that he had women as some of his closest followers. He stood up for them. He protected them. He honored women. And the Christian faith all of a sudden became a very unusual voice in the world. And a lot of these prominent women, a lot of them were wealthy, came from... uh, well-to-do families, and that was extremely attractive. Paul would later write in Galatians 3.28 that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amazing. That verse has been called the Magna Carta of freedom in the New Testament. And so this was attractive to these women. And when I was preparing and thinking about this sermon, I thought, so what was Paul's main message? He comes to the synagogue, he he gets a chance to declare the gospel for three straight weeks. What was kind of his core message? Well, it tells us in verse 3, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Essentially, three things. Jesus the fulfillment, he's the one that's long been predicted in Jesus the fulfillment. Jesus suffered and died for all of us, and Jesus rose again, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And then I happened to get a little buzz on my phone, and I flipped it open, and uh, there was a little new thing on my Twitter feed. And it was from Tim Keller, pastor and author in New York City, downtown Manhattan. Brilliant guy, written a whole bunch of books. And uh, this was the feed. It says, when people tell me that they were once believing Christians, but now have rejected it all, I often ask them, after long and close listening, why they originally believed Jesus rose from the dead, and how they came to decide that he now did not. They usually say, that's a helpful question. And you know what Tim Keller is pointing out is that often when people reject the Christian faith, it's everything but the core. I've heard statements over the last several years, like people saying things like, you know what, I'm rejecting the Christian faith because I think the biblical guidelines for sexuality are just repressive. I've really come to embrace kind of the idea that everyone should just live out their sexuality in whatever way they feel good about at whatever time. Or other people say, you know what, I'm rejecting my Christian faith because I heard about the injustices that Christians have done in the past. Way back in history from the Crusades to the the residential schools here in Canada to uh, the continual bad news about Roman Catholic priests being abusers. Uh, I'm just rejecting it for all that. Now, those are all important issues that need to be carefully thought through and addressed and responded to. But what Tim Keller is pointing out is what the Apostle Paul was doing in the first century. He was keeping the main thing, the main thing. To reject your Christian faith because of all the surrounding Secondary issues caused by the terrible behavior of Jesus' followers and not spend one second addressing the core, the world-changing, history-altering core of Jesus is a massive, tragic mistake. Verse 3 outlines it. And 2,000 years of church history confirm it. Number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of salvation history. The whole first half of the Bible predicts his coming. And Jesus perfectly fulfills every single one of those prophecies. Number two, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He willingly chose to lay down his life to redeem this fallen, broken world back to himself. He offers healing and hope and restoration He suffered the worst possible excruciating death on the cross. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. So that no one who ever suffers in all of world history could ever shake their fist at heaven and say, you don't know what it's like down here. Jesus says, yes, I do. I've experienced all of it. Number three, the empty tomb. He rose again, conquering sin, death, and evil. And that's why Tim Keller made that tweet. People are sitting him down. They're outlining all these other reasons why they're rejecting the Christian faith. Tim Keller listens. He asks questions. He has a great conversation. And then he asks that central question. When and how did you go from originally believing that Jesus rose from the dead and have now come to decide that he did not? Reading between the lines, people are apparently saying, "Uh, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. But now that you pointed that out, that's a helpful question. And that Ocean View Community Church here and watching online this morning, that is unbelievably tragic. Keep the main things the main things. And once you've affirmed the core, then you are on solid ground to think deeply and Christianly about all those other issues. I want to be clear this morning, it is not wrong to doubt. It's not wrong to struggle with all those kind of issues and ask questions. But you know what is wrong? Is to do it in the wrong order. It has to be the core first and the other issues second. And we see that so clearly in Paul's preaching here in Acts. All right. So we've seen a good slice of the people associated with the synagogue have responded to the gospel at the same time there are clearly those who have rejected it and they don't just sit on the sidelines let's pick it up in verse five through nine but the other jews were jealous so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob and started a riot in the city they rushed to jason's house in search of paul and silas in order to bring them out to the crowd but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others bond and let them go. My favorite all-time movie is uh, *Chariots of Fire*, and there is a great scene where Sam Mussabini, kind of the legendary track and field coach, he goes from Southern England up to Scotland to watch Eric Little, the famous Scottish runner, run. And kind of before the competition, he's down on the field watching the athletes. And uh, the Scottish director, who's kind of in charge of these games, comes over and he goes, "Ah, Mr. Mussabini." And they have a conversation. He says, well, I just wanted to make sure you're only here to spectate, uh, not to recruit athletes, you know, as a professional coach. And he says, don't worry, don't worry. I'm just here spectating. And uh, they have this little conversation. And finally, the Scottish guy kind of tips his hat. And he says, well, enjoy the games to battle. And Musabini kind of unders his breath. He goes, games, you must be joking. He says, I've seen better organized riots. And it kind of makes me laugh every time I watch that little scene. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts 17. This is an organized riot. This small group of jealous Jewish people that have rejected the gospel, they they say, now what can we do? How can we start this? So they find some shady characters down in the marketplace. Maybe uh, offered him a little cash or some other incentive. And uh, these guys join in. And they go and they, they had heard that Paul and Silas were at Jason's house. This Jewish man who had converted to the Christian faith. And they figure, we, can, we got him. We, we can find him here. And uh, interestingly enough those early Christians had kind of deked them out. They had gotten Paul and Silas out of there. They got wind of the mob and they were one step ahead. So the mob shows up. The only one who's around is Jason and uh, the owner of the house. So they drag him in front of these city officials. And they make this incredible little speech. They said, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, it is actually true that the gospel causes disturbance, disruption. It changes the meaning and direction of people's lives. It's done that for the past 2,000 years. But the end effect isn't ultimately trouble, it's peace. Once the human heart has made that switch, once someone has come to faith in Christ, then the Bible says that promise is fulfilled and and Christ gives us his supernatural peace. You know, Paul and his companions weren't defying Caesar's decree, trying to stage a coup or or take over, kind of kick Caesar off the throne, put Jesus on the throne. That wasn't their plan. In fact, Jesus had faced the same charge at his trial, his false trial and crucifixion. The real truth is, Jesus didn't come to be the king of one kingdom or one empire. Jesus is in fact the king of all kings. He's over top all of them. And he doesn't need or want political power. Instead, he rules the world through self-sacrifice. He is the king of kings, but in a vastly higher and better and different way than these people could ever even imagine. So in the end, they simply make uh, Jason and the others pay a bond and they are released. So it kind of all comes to nothing. And Paul, years later, would write back to this newly formed church in the book of Thessalonians. And listen to what Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, says and remembers about the beginning of that church. 1 Thessalonians 1, to 4-10 For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of, of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amazing, Paul looking back on the founding of that church all those years later, realizing this little church was founded in the midst of a riot, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of chaos. But look what God has done. What a compliment he plays them. He says, your faith has become known everywhere. And I think that is a huge encouragement to us collectively as a church. It's a huge encouragement to us individually in our lives. We go through hard things. We go through really challenging stuff. But look what God in Christ did in that local body of believers. Look what He can do in our church, in our lives. So that maybe future believers in other places will say, you know what, I was actually inspired. By so-and-so. Or I was inspired by that local church. Pretty amazing stuff. Alright, we're going to pick up our final section of verses in verses 10-15. through 15. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as it also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But then the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea. Some of them went there too, agitating the crowds, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Paul and Silas stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him all the way to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join as soon as possible. I want to tell you this morning about Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein fled Europe in 1933 as the Nazi party was rising in influence in Germany. They were gaining control. In fact, the Nazis by 1933 had seized Einstein's house. He had a little cabin on a lake. They seized it, they seized his sailboat. And uh, there was a school in the United States in New Jersey, the Institute for Advanced Study. And so they heard about Einstein's predicament and they offered him a professorship. And he actually stayed at that school right up until he died in 1955. Now, during all those years, Einstein was an extremely popular speaker. Everybody wanted to hear about his theories of relativity and all these other things. And Einstein often found himself on the speaker's circuit, and he would tend to give a similar presentation each time. And he was kind of the he was a scientist. He wanted to be back in his laboratory. He wanted to be back studying and thinking about physics. He, he didn't always want to be giving the same speech. And so as he's driving to yet one more dinner, one more speaking opportunity, he, uh, he says to his driver, he says, you know, I can hardly handle this. I'm giving the same speech one more time. And the driver says, I have an idea, boss. I've heard you give the speech many times. I'll bet I could do it for you. And he kind of laughs, and he's like, I'll bet you could. Why not? Let's do it. So they arrive at the dinner. They switch clothes. Einstein puts on the driver's jacket and his cap, and he sits kind of at the back of the room. And the guy does an amazing job. He gives this speech. He actually even fielded the first simple question. And then a supremely pompous physics professor stands up and asks this incredibly complex question about antimatter formation. And he kind of took some rabbit trails just to make sure everyone in the crowd knew he was super smart. And without missing a beat, finally the guy fires the question and the driver says, Sir, the answer to your question is so simple, I'm going to get my driver at the back of the room to answer it. Now, (laughs) I looked up the story, and it's actually not true. Now, that didn't take place. It turns out that's a Jewish folktale that's been told in various forms, and the latest form involves Einstein and his reader. And I thought about that for a second. I was like, why does the story make us laugh? Why is it so appealing? Because the underdog kind of flips it onto the powerful, the powers that be. And that's exactly what happens in the second half of our passage. We might expect kind of riot number two. Paul and the, Silas and Timothy show up in Berea, this new place. It's just going to be a repeat of what just happened in Thessalonica. But shockingly, surprisingly, it's not. The text tells us that the Jewish people there were of more noble character interesting it really praises them and what does it praise them for it says they heard paul's message they heard all the things he was claiming and they didn't just immediately accept it it says they dug into the scriptures they opened up that first half of the bible that we call the old testament and they searched it diligently and they they said is what paul's saying absolutely true You know what? I think that's so key that the Bible takes time out to praise that. Because the often indictment of Christians is, oh, you guys don't think about anything. You just blindly accept whatever you're told. And in fact, right from the beginning, the Christian faith has not been that. We've praised it when people think it through carefully, do the research, think about it for themselves. And I thought, you know what, that is actually a really relevant example for all of us. Even if you've already decided to follow Jesus, you've been following him for many years, there's never been a time in history where you have access to so much information. There are 10,000 sermons available on the internet. You can listen to audio, you can watch YouTube videos, you can watch church websites. And early on in my years here at Ocean View, we had a a couple come to faith. They got baptized. Everything seemed to be going so well. And then all of a sudden, after a period of time, they just kind of stopped coming on Sundays. And, well, I don't know what's going on. Could be different things. And I tried to reach out, send them an email, a text, whatever. All of a sudden, six months later, they call me up and they're in my office. And they're upset with me. I'm like, what? what happened, you guys? How do we go from this to this? And I'll never forget what happened. They sat me down and said, you know what? We would put our little kids to bed, and then every single night we'd grab our iPad and we'd watch different speakers on YouTube. And they said, overdoing that over six months, we have become completely filled with fear. We're fearful at the state of the world. We're fearful at what we think the church has become. They had a massive list of things they were scared of. And they said, we don't really know the answer, but we figure the safest thing is to go to an extreme. And so we want to run away from churches that are trying to reach people. We don't want to have anything to do with uh, unchurched people, those who aren't of faith yet. And honestly, I didn't cry, but my heart broke in that meeting. I was like, you guys, oh no. And you know, when I was reading this passage this week, and I, I thought about the Bereans who, who didn't just take it for themselves, they diligently searched the Scripture, it kind of hit me, that was the missing ingredient for that couple. It's not bad to watch another sermon on YouTube, that's great. But the Bible does call us to to hold it up against the standard of God's Word, to to examine whether what we're hearing is actually legitimate, actually true. Does it line up with the whole story of God's salvation history? And I want to encourage each one of us, let's not make the same mistake those folks did. It's okay to search things through. In fact, you might think, if, if you heard me preach and then you went home and read some things and you had some questions, you might think, well, I don't want to ask Darren. I don't want to offend him. In fact, it's the opposite. You make me very happy because you're being a Berean. We should all be Bereans. All right. So there's so much success going on. This little church is exploding in Berea that the grumpy gang in Thessalonica says, ah, enough of that. We got to go there so they go there and like this time we're getting paul we have to get him this time but just like einstein's driver turned the tables on the snooty professor guy so god has used this barely started church these believers who are just babies in their faith god uses them to turn the tables on the whole situation They're one step ahead. They get Paul to the coast. They actually escort him down to the Greek capital of Athens. And you know, that's encouraging. I think there are days when we are tempted to believe that Vancouver Island is such a secular place. People are so hard and resistant to the good news of the gospel. Really, there's kind of no hope. And then we look at our church and we go, we've just been marching through a pandemic. My word, I don't even know how many people are in our church anymore. But it strikes me when I read the book of Acts that it doesn't matter the size of your local church. It doesn't matter the amount of budget money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter how famous you are or the clout you have. There are absolutely no barriers. When God wants to establish the local church, He will do it. And I just felt like I needed to tell you that this morning. Do not be afraid. Do not give up. God did amazing stuff in Thessalonica. He did amazing stuff in Berea. And God can do amazing things right here in our town, our island, our province, and our country. Amen? Debbie, please come pray for me.